I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the latest Ramble Meets. I'm Andy Brassel and this one was a great pleasure for me uh, because it was the German author and journalist Uli Hesse who I sat down with at the end of a long and very enjoyable football weekend in uh, northern Germany for which he was our guide. Uh, Uli, having written a ton of books, uh, most notably Tor on uh, the, the history of German football, he's written um, books on Bayern, um, Borussia Dortmund, his club as as, as well, uh, now works at uh, Elf Freunde, the, the excellent German uh, football magazine. And he took us around and uh, showed us what was what from um, Dusseldorf to, to Bochum. And... Um, he very kindly made some time for us at, at, at the end of weekend. Um, we didn't really have anywhere to do it. So we just sat down in a quietish corner of a restaurant, which despite it being Sunday night and selling Austrian schnitzel was playing loads of banging music, as I'm, I'm sure you'll be aware of. Um, and it was a good point to start our chat because even though this particular music is not Uli's bag, uh, Uli actually started out as... Um, a, a music journalist and has, has got loads of, of rich musical stories to, to tell us. So that was the starting point to our conversation, which went off in several different directions, which I'm, I'm sure you're really going to love after that. So this is Ramble Meets with Uli Hesse. Enjoy. We started this weekend um, talking about the great musical traditions of Dusseldorf, where we currently are, and uh, talking about craft work. Um, they can be considered responsible for this, I suppose. Uh, you mean for this, uh, for this, <laughs> yeah. for, for our journey to Dusseldorf, or for for, the... for music everywhere? <laughs> yeah, in a way. Well, well, for a certain strand of music, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, with guitar bands and, and, and punk bands and everything, so. Uh, but yeah, Kraftwerk. Uh, I mean, funnily enough, I really didn't didn't really appreciate it when they were around. Did I you mean, not? No, no, not really. I was too young, I think. Right. I was, um, you know, I was born in '66. So um, by the time I really got around to going to gigs and writing about music, um, you know, it was uh, like like I said, I was more into guitar bands and then. Mm. And, um, Although, of course, you know, um, of course, I grew up, basically, I grew up on John Peel. Uh, really? He, oh, yeah, he was, I'm from Dortmund. Yeah. And um, um, the British Army on the Rhine, you know, was, was in the western part of Germany. So that's why we had BFBS, 
uh, British Forces Broadcasting Service. Okay. So we would get jump here. It's sometimes funny when I met people from, uh, for instance, from Bavaria who've had AFM, you know, the mm. American station, uh, and, and, and then I realized they never heard John Peel or, you know, they just couldn't listen to it. Uh, that sounds amazing, uh, but I'm always surprised when people say that. And once when, when we moved to the Baltic Sea, I checked out a record store in Lübeck, uh, and then I bought a record quite cheaply for, I think it was four euros, uh, an Inca Babies album, you know? Okay. Uh, and, and the guy at the counter said, oh, I'm surprised anybody knows this band. And I said, well, yeah, John Peel used to play them all the time. <laughs> and then he said, well, ah, I never heard John Peel, you know, because uh, he was from the north. I forgot, well, the Americans as well, I think. So he probably had American radio. So, so were you a music writer before you were a football writer? Yeah, that was the idea. The, the whole oh, that idea was the idea? Was, yeah, the whole idea was to be... Well, actually... Well, actually, the idea was, I mean, I, uh, um, for instance, a lot of people always ask me why, um, why I can write books in English, mm. you know. People, people sometimes assume that, uh, you know, the, the books that I publish in, in England, um, like Tor or, or Building the Yellow Wall, are, are translation of German books, mm. but they're not. They, they're written directly into yeah, English. Yeah, yeah, and specifically for... I think oh, I always think that somebody who picks up the book and reads it should realize that it's not a German book, you know? Because, for instance, in Tor, I spend a lot of time explaining what German club names mean or yes. things you would never have to do in Germany, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and there's lots of people out there, who's, who's lots of non-native non, you know, non speakers of English, who speak English a lot better than I am, than I do. But they always say, "But I couldn't write the, you know, I couldn't write in a foreign language." Yeah. Uh, and and that's, that really has to do with the fact that um, uh, a friend of mine, who's a bit older than I am, he was a teacher of English, and he put out a fanzine, and that was the fanzine was in English. Okay. And the idea was just, you know, well, your your audience is just so much bigger. I don't know how many magazines we sold to Japan, you know. Uh, there's some ra crazy record collectors out there in Japan. <laughs> uh, they would just send us blank checks, you know, and saying, send me these records. And we, we, we would have to explain to them, we're only reviewing them, you know, we don't have them. Uh, anyway, so that's, I mean, from age 15 or 16 or whatever, I had to do record reviews and articles about bands in English. And it was just, I suppose, it's just, you know, training. You so, know, so was the start of writing about sports when you did your thesis on baseball didn't you <laughs> yeah 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 the actually the idea was uh actually there was no idea i mean like, <laughs> i went to university because I, I had no idea what to do with my life you know i was yeah me too yeah so uh <clears throat> so i thought you know university is a way to to you know to ward off a responsible at our yes. life for as long as possible then then i did quite well at university i liked it and um, uh, when, when I did my master's thesis, I went to a it's qu quite a famous American uh, professor, um, David Galloway, <coughs> and and I asked him w what I should do for a master's thesis. And basically, the gist of it is, he said, "Do something you're interested in, and don't bother me with you know like 1,500 master's thesis on Hemingway or whatever, you know." <laughs> find something nobody's done before so I, a couple of weeks later I came back and said about oh, baseball and he said oh, that's fantastic do that so I did that so 
for a while I thought that I, maybe I would even stay at university, you know. Um, and become an academic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and Do you think I, you've done that in a sort of football-y way? Yeah, uh, well, the idea, well, to be perfectly honest with you, Andy, the idea was I go to university, I do silly, silly nerdy stuff nobody's really interested in, and my wife, who's an architect, earns the money. All right. Perfect plan, right? <laughs> Perfect life. So that was the idea. Then suddenly she came up, she came up to me and said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I need a break. Mm. You know, she was really overworked. And so at that point, I thought, okay, just, you know, just supposed that I have to earn money. How would I actually do that? <laughs> uh, and so what I did was I'd just done um, a piece for, for the fanzine uh, with a guy called Wayne Kramer from the MC5. Abandoned yes. The yeah. And it was, it was really amazing because his life story is fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's this revolutionary band and then he, uh, the band breaks up, which is his life, and he doesn't know what to do, so he sells drugs and <laughs> he gets busted and he goes to prison. And he can, well, fantastic life. <laughs> uh, <coughs> so I thought, uh, wait, that, that's, I think I could, you know, um, I, could, I could rewrite that in German and in a non-fanzine style yes. and sell that to a proper music magazine. So I did that, and then I put it in an envelope and sent it off to Rolling Stone magazine mm. in Germany. We, we, they were just starting that back then in the mid-90s, so the German Rolling Stone. And I didn't hear anything from them for weeks, so I phoned them up. So, of course, I now know that you're not supposed to do that. I mean, that's not how it works. <laughs> the naivety of youth. I phoned them up and said, hey, I, I sent you guys an article, and you didn't reply. What happened? And they said... Oh, we forgot to tell you, it's going to be in the next issue. And could you invoice <laughs> us for 850 marks? <laughs> and I never had much money before, so I thought, okay, interesting. <laughs> so then I started writing for Rolling Stone. So I wrote for Rolling Stone Germany for a while. Yeah. But eventually we ran out of, we ran out of subjects. You know, because um, I like Neil Young, but yes. I'm not that much into Neil Young, you know. And, and the kind of, you know punky or, or, or post-punk bands that I like were not really Rolling Stone material. Sure. But they have this, um, Rolling Stone has this uh, general interest section, you know, they will always pick up on, mm. on you know, on what's happening in society and, uh, um, and cover other things apart from music, pop cultural things. And that was in the early 90s, early to mid 90s when the football boom started, yeah. you know, the Premier League came about, the Champions League. Yeah. And you know, back in the 80s when we went to games, uh, people would say we're crazy, you know, because only hooligans or, uh, you know, you know, uh, well, people would look at you in a strange way if you said yeah. you're a football fan. Yeah, it's, it's a it's funny... remember, you know. Yeah, it's a funny thing how that, that as you say, pan-European sort of football becoming fashionable is like a relatively new thing. I remember like, when I started going to football in the mm -hmm. mid to late 80s, if you said that you went to football, people looked at you as if you were scum, yeah. you know, and it, it was the same in England, absolutely. Yeah, and it was not fashionable. I mean, I later did a book about an oral history book about Borussia Dortmund fans, which was great fun because yeah. um, um, we, al we also asked people for photos, you know, you know yeah. saying, did you take photos at the games? Could you give them? And uh, we received a, a guy went to a game at, at um, the Olympic Stadium in, um, in, in Munich between Bayern and Dortmund in the 80s. And it was a regular Bundesliga game, and he'd look at the pictures, 
and you think is this a post-apocalyptic scene you know is this like the walking dead or what <laughs> i mean has this ground been attacked or whatever because it's really almost empty yeah. you know there were games you know top level bundesliga games between bayern and dortmund with nine or ten thousand people at the olympic stadium yeah which which was a is is and was a vast ground uh, so and suddenly this This, this changed, you know, not, not exactly overnight, but it changed fairly quickly. And so I went out and I talked to a lot of people and did interviews. And, uh, you know, I went to, to cinema festivals where they were show, suddenly showing football films and there would be discussions about it, you know, as if it were an intellectual or viable subject, you know. Very funny, very interesting. So I did a long piece about that and uh, I met quite a few people during the. Uh, during, um, during the research for that and that's how I got into football writing mm. slowly gradually but eventually it was I ended up writing about nothing else but football uh, which is funny but, it, but that's, that's what happened so at the beginning when you started going to see Borussia Dortmund and I, I, from what I gather it was a bit of a family rite of, of passage did you have any pretensions any childhood dreams to be involved in in the game whether it be playing or working in the game or anything like that or, or was it just that, that your first idea of having a career in the game was when you kind of stumbled into it almost yeah I mean I often say there's this cliche about sports writers that they're failed athletes yes which is not the case with me so me neither yeah I, I mean, well I am a failed athlete but I didn't try it <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean that there's a there's a f fantastic series of book called the best American sports writing yeah. uh, edited by Glenn Stout and in one of his he always writes in uh, you know an introduction to those collections and in one in one of those um, he said that um That if, if you want to be a really good sports writer, uh, you should not be interested, you know, prim your primarily interest should not be the sports, but the writing. So you, you've got to love writing yes. and then, then choose a subject you know well to write about. Mm. And th that's, that absolutely holds true for me. That's how I became a sports writer. Um, although there was a point, and I, I once wrote a, a, a column for ESPN about that. Uh, of course, like any young boy, I played football and I played on the team and I dreamed of becoming a professional footballer. But I didn't know how, how you do that, you know, when mm. you're 10 or 11 years, how do you actually become a professional footballer? So I thought, uh, well, I just asked the one man who should know, which was the coach of my favorite team. So I wrote a letter to Otto Rehagel. <laughs> Is that right? And he never replied. I mean, this was 76 or 77 and he was the Dortmund coach at the time. And he never replied and I was... You know, I never forgave him for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> you see, if it, if it had been Klopp here at Dortmund, he would have replied. It, it, that's probably true. Yeah, 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 that's probably true. That's probably true. So, I mean, Dortmund are, are, are such an, a team that's cap captured the imagination in the world. I mean, I, I, and when, you know, you wrote Building the Yellow Wall, it wasn't so much about Borussia Dortmund. Yeah and your relationship even with Borussia Dortmund but it was about Borussia Dortmund as you say as, as the biggest cult club in the world I mean when you look back at your early days of going to see Dortmund when you in the 1970s it, it, is, it, is it still the club recognizable from then how much has, has, has changed and you know do you think that you know 
it's a sort of accident of nature, a happy accident of nature that you were that you were born in Dortmund, that it was your club, and that you had source material to an extent. Um, yeah, I was um, y- you know one of the one of the great things about being a writer is um, that you're given a chance to reinvent yourself. You know, yeah, romanticize a bit. So every book I've ever done mentions that I was born in Dortmund and <laughs> born just a couple of miles away from the ground, which is all true. Yeah, but. Uh, when I was one year old, my family moved away from Dortmund, just 20 minutes down the road. But that's when you're young, that's that's quite a distance. For sure. So uh, it's probably the main reason I became a Dortmund fan. It's not so much that I was born there or that we live close nearby, because. Well, to reaffirm that attachment to where it, you were it's born. Because Dortmund, you know, the rural area is very. There's tons of clubs in the rural area. Yeah. Uh, so when I grew up in our street, there were all kinds. You know, people supported all kinds of clubs. Uh, lots of people supported Borussia Mönchengladbach in the 70s. Of course. Because uh, they were the cool club, you know. So yeah. so. Um, but Dortmund was really because of my brother. Mm. Uh, he's 12 years older than I am, and he started going in the 60s. And he was one of the... Um, I, when I did this book, which I just, just mentioned, which is sort of a oral history of the club, yes. it was also a bit of my way of saying thank you to him. Uh, and... and if you read the book, it, well, you won't because it's a German book, but um, I dedicated to him, and he's interviewed in the book. Mm. But since we didn't have the same father, nobody who, read, who reads the book will know that it is my brother. Right. Uh, so I did this on purpose just because and, um, yeah, because we, he was my big hero, and I thought of and And he was one of the very, you know, uh, Dobbin were a big club in the 50s and 60s. Then, uh, when I was young, they weren't a big club. They were in the second division, you know. Uh, and he, he was one of the few people who followed the club mm. when they were in the second division. Um, and it was... So, the guy is older than I am. He's my brother. He's your hero anyway, if he's mm. your older brother. Then my mum would always say mysterious things like... I would say, where's Klaus, my brother? And she would say, oh, he's off to Mülheim or Erkenschwick with Borussia. And... It always sounded a bit like the guy's crazy, you know? Yeah. But it sounded totally mysterious to me and fantastic, you know? I thought, God, he's going to Erkenschwick with Borussia. Fantastic. I wouldn't do that when I'm grown up, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so that, 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 that's more or less why it's, why it's Dortmund for me. Um, it, it, it's this, this family thing, uh, which is still there. So that's still there. So I just recently did a piece about that for the magazine I'm writing now for because we... Everything's become El Fronda. So, El Fronda. Everything's become so commercialized, and and so many people my age are actually turning away from the game. Mm. So so we did a cover story on why we still love football. You know what what's still, and and, and the angle that I picked is that, um, it's that it's not just the game as played between the lines. You know, it's 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 the people in the stands and the people you meet, mm. and I still meet my brother whenever I see Dortmund play yeah. uh, like at one point we, we you know we, we started families and we would only see each other on my mum's birthday and Christmas and whenever Dortmund were playing at home and it's still it's like this to this day uh, yeah. I know where my brother's standing he's still on the terrace so that's that's one thing why the club is still the same yeah. another and I don't know if you have for people who've never been to Dortmund it's um it's not the nicest city in the world, uh, but everything that has to do with football is, is, is really cool um, because 
you can go from the city center to the ground in like 30 minutes. You can just walk over there. Mm. And the old ground is right next to the new ground. Yes. And the old ground now looks, still looks almost exactly like it did in the 60s when my brother saw his first game there. And the lower part of the new ground is still exactly the same as it was when I saw my first game in 77. Mm. So when I go to, onto the terrace, you know, I still walk up the same steps, the rails are the same, the crush barriers are still the same. And that's, um, that you still have that sense of belonging, you know. Uh, so then again, you know, the upper tiers are different, they are new, and that also holds true for, you know, as, an, as, an, as a metaphor, because everything, that's happened to the club, of course. It's um, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, um, it's still one of the greatest ironies, I think, of in, in German football, uh, that the one club that uh, you know, whether rightfully or not, you know, is, is perceived as being still authentic and yes. and fan friendly and fan driven, is also one of only two clubs that that have gone public. Yeah, uh, that is. A, you know, you can buy Dortmund shares on the stock market, yeah. uh, and it was and it was the only club for a very long time. It's just yes. recently that another small club has done the same. So that, of course, has been a massive change. And if we go back to 2013, when there was the All German Champions League final, um, I, I saw you in London when you were over for, for for the final. It's something you talk about quite evocatively in the book about it being some sort of turning point for Dortmund because I've, I've said this before for for me I, I said it to Carsten Kramer when I was, I was speaking to him a, a, a while back about London is a, a city a bit like I suppose um, Paris where or, or Berlin actually where you can it's a city of such size such variety yeah, yeah. you could go about I mean, even in London which is has got 10 professional clubs you can go about your daily life and you could quite easily not realize football existed or ignore football or, or whatever but in that week leading up to the final not between two english clubs not between one english club and another club but between two german clubs london really was gripped by the occasion and you talk in the book about how londoners responded to dortmund how much of a turning point is this for the for the, for the clubs yeah, I, I don't even remember if I wrote about that in, in, in Building the Yellow Wall. I think it was, I think I used it for, for tour uh, because we were staying with a friend of mine near East Finchley tube station. Uh, and after the game, we went to a pub, uh, which was a bald headed stag or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and we sat down in the pub. And uh, by that time, we no longer had club colors on. So yeah. we sat down in the pub and talked to her. I think, I think there were some Manchester United fans there. Yeah. And we were talking about the game. And, and suddenly uh, a cheer went up and, and people started applauding and we turned around and some other guests had, you know, they, they stood up to leave and they had Dortmund scarves on and the pop staff, they, they'd lined up, you know, behind God the of honor. Yeah, and were applauding. Wow. So, the, uh, so that was, you know, you're not, as a German, you're not used to that, <laughs> that sort of thing uh, abroad, uh, especially not as a football fan. So um, uh, I think it was even before that, before that Champions League final, because um, 
um, one of the stories that I draw upon in, in the magazine in, in the book uh, was that um, a couple of months before uh, 442 assigned me to do a cover story on yes. Dortmund um, and, and they said it was the first time that a German team was on the cover of right. 442 magazine even before Bayern yeah Bayern. and they said they had a choice of course between Dortmund and Bayern because uh, Bayern were also doing quite well at that time and they felt that Dortmund was just a lot more sexy or yeah. attractive or I don't know um, so and if you how did that make you feel was that surprising or natural or um, well it makes you think about the team again if you know what I mean because um, what, so you're seeing it through new eyes yeah, from an yeah, outsider's perspective thinking, okay now I've got to talk to all these players and the manager and, and then I have to do, do to write about my club Mm-hmm. Uh, but for people who are not, who don't know as much about it as, as I do or uh, mm-hmm. the Germans do, so I have to explain certain things and also. So that makes you just think about why mm-hmm. you know why do they want me to write that and then who are these people? What make what what is it that makes Klopp so mm-hmm. so unique and, and and well things like that. So I think that was the first time. Well, obviously, I mean. They assigned me, you know, they, they assigned the story already because they felt there was this buzz about, around Dortmund. Yes. And uh, that people, um, I mean, it's always been, in a way, it's always been like, well, not always, but um, um, funnily enough, um, there's, there's now this thing about, you know, Brits coming over to Dortmund yes. to, 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 watch, to watch the club, you know, instead of their own club or instead of a Premier League club or whatever. But um, we, we English soldiers were stationed in Dortmund, you know. So that's Brit- not unusual. British soldiers, I should say. Yeah. So, um, so a- as a kid, I was used to people suddenly, you know, yelling Sheffield United or whatever during a lull in the game, you know. Yeah. Because there were, you know, some soldiers uh, scattered around the ground, and um, um, and c- quite a few of them stayed, you know. Uh, there's a famous group of Scottish Dortmund supporters, okay. you know, who go to the game wearing their kilts. And, uh, you know, they were stationed in Dortmund and they just, you know, they married a German girl and they stayed. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. 
Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. So how do people, not just in Germany, but particularly in Dortmund and Nordrhein-Westphalia, how, how do they view Jurgen Klopp's success at, at, at Liverpool? Um, there is a bit of a, um, you know, we, we've, we've done a few pieces about the, the situation in Dortmund now for the magazine, um, which is, it's been a, a roller coaster season for Dortmund. Sure. You know, they've done fantastically well on some occasions, you know, uh, conceded ridiculous goals, you know, yes. threw away leads, uh, you, you just cannot throw away, you know, conceding three goals at home against Paderborn, uh, things like that. And uh, there's been some criticism of the manager, you know, he was um, Lucien Favre, you know, and, and there, was, there was a time um, uh, during the first half of the season uh, where people thought he would be sacked um, so we did, we did pieces about that and one of these things is always that um, and, and the club themselves admit that and acknowledge that is that you know, he's so different from Klopp you know? uh, he as, as was Tuchel yeah he is a person is so different uh, his football is different and, and so people are always comparing well, people are comparing any, any Dortmund coach anyway mm. to Klopp all the time now mm. you, know? you know he's not you know his football is not as attacking or mm. he's not as smart or he's not as emotional or whatever mm. uh, but of course right now um, um, we also have the problem that Klopp is doing you know is having the season of his life yes you know <laughs> until he lost that game you know that recent game there was a decent chance they would go unbeaten this season mm. you know and he just won the Champions League so which is you know so the shadow this season is becoming you know normally even it, longer yeah normally you know with time, time passes and the shadows become, the shadow mm. becomes smaller but with Klopp it's becoming bigger all the time <laughs> which is really a problem for the club uh, in a way and there's this cliche, uh, and there is, I admit it, there is some truth to this. There's this cliche about the Dortmund fan uh, who, who watches Dortmund play on the tally and then switches over to see how Liverpool are doing. And then, uh, spends more and more time watching the Liverpool game. And it's really, it's, yeah. You know, TV subscriptions are very expensive these days. You've got to make the most of every, every, everything you've got on your TV. Um, it's really. I, I went to. I wrote this for the magazine because um, uh, I, I went uh, over Christmas. I went back to Dortmund, and we had a few. Uh, my my son's girlfriend has a very large family, so Christmas now, you know, consists of three or four uh, parties, family <laughs> parties, and, and and at one point, 
somebody would always say, when's Klopp playing? You know, is it tomorrow, today? Who are they playing? It's funny. Or maybe it's not funny. I think it's funny. No, no, it's it's funny. It's definitely funny. So... One of your other books, I mean, you've, you've written, what, nine? Nine, is that? Does that sound about right? I read, I read, I read eight, nine. No, I'm uh, after the first three, I'm you not, don't know. I'm not trying to be, uh, what's the word, coquettish? Yeah. But, uh, well, one of, one of them, anyway, <coughs> is um, on Mesut Ozil. Uh, yeah, I was just one, one author. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, it's a book about Ozil, and uh, there's a couple of writers who were asked to cover certain aspects of but, his but, career but, but he he is a, a a fascinating figure and he's become a sort of a bit of a withdrawn figure yeah well, in, in english s- football um but, but obvi- obviously far more serious than him not being able to get in the team at arsenal or not being that important at arsenal is <clears throat> what happened to him post 2018 world cup how do you see that now yeah uh, Probably in retrospect, we will one way we'll say it was one of the strangest football careers uh, we've ever seen. Yes. You know, I mean, because I mean, he's always divided his opinion. Mm. Um, as a player, I mean, you know, uh, just is that because of his manner? Yeah. No, I think of his playing style. He's. Yeah. I think he's he's very much a uh, a, a manager's player mm. um, because all the managers he's played under have rated him very highly mm. and he's played under very good managers you know yes. and very uh, different managers and very different managers and um, uh, but he's just the sort of player you know uh, uh, players will uh, sorry uh, fans will get angry about if, th- if things are not getting right you know uh, he, he, well, he's not a grafter mm. you know he's not a guy who gets stuck in mm. and he's just sort of I don't know I mean, we had the, in, in, in a way, he's the classical 70s midfield genius, yes. you know. Uh, I mean, and he, and he does a lot of, I mean, and the funny thing is that um, if you look at his stats, mm. they're all great. Mm. Uh, I mean, people always say he's not running, but if you look at the stats, and he, do, he does cover a lot yeah, of ground. It, 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 it's, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's proved not to be the case. It, people, people say, oh, he's not doing anything, you know, he's just passing the ball around, and you look at the stats, and he's setting up all all the goals you know yeah. or, or, the, or you know uh, the pass before the final pass yeah. or something like that it's just that I don't know it's just his body language or the way he plays the game is uh, it's, I, have to, I think you have to be a real football connoisseur to really appreciate mm. that or uh, well anyway he's always divided opinion that way uh, as a player and then um, we don't have to go to all the background you know you know the background no. to the yeah exactly uh, but it was really um, when that photo came out at the magazine, we immediately knew this is going to be trouble. Well, it's, it's funny um, because we were going around. Uh, you and I were going around the National Football Museum in Dortmund. Just, yeah, oh, just yeah, 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 right. The photos, there, and, yeah. and they've they've got the the Hall of Fame there, and they've got the names of every player to have ever played yeah, for the yeah. senior German national team. And our guide was telling us that his name has been scratched yeah. off the wall like four times. So obviously, people that still have a massive yeah, be in yeah. their bonnet about it. It's also because I, I think because I mean, uh, it's not uh, Gundogan and Özil were both on the photo, mm. um, and well, the German FA badly mis- mishandled that number yes. one uh, because we at the magazine maybe it's because we're media people, but they've got their own media people. We immediately knew, you know, just a couple of days away from a World Cup, this is 
you know, news, this will make the news no matter what, you know, everything having to do with football in the World Cup is making the news now. Now with all this social media uh, stuff we have, you know, everybody's going to have an opinion about that. Yes. Uh, now with this media climate, you know, where mm. people are totally get worked up about everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And finally, and sadly, but it's true, uh, there are still racial prejudices towards Turkish players. You have mm. to say that, you know. Um, so these people will have a field day. You know, you, you, you just knew that. Um, people say, um, well, obviously, Turkey is more important to him than Germany, so he's played for Germany, mm. and so on and so on. Uh, so in the German FA, as I said, they, uh, they, uh, they underestimated that very, very badly. Mm. So, and from that, it just, you know, it just snowballed. Um, but as I just said, he's always divided opinion. Mm. So from his playing style, from the fact that he very rarely gives interviews. Mm. Um, so he was the perfect target for that. Well, that that's the thing, when a player doesn't give interviews, especially, especially today, just speculation rises to fill the vacuum about what they're like and how they conduct yeah. themselves. And especially with, with any sort of famous people, we, we love to profess that we know them yeah. because they're part of our daily lives we see them on screen and we read about them all the time when actually we know nothing about them really as people yeah yeah absolutely yeah, I agree and uh, and he handled the situation totally different from Gundogan who was also in the photo uh, who gave interviews who explained the situation uh, and, and, and it was just nothing basically did nothing and then he issued a public statement via was it Facebook or Twitter or both mm. I forget which was clearly very much uh, which was, you know, worded and drafted by an agent or a press yes. agent or whatever. Uh, it was very, it was, it was very unfortunate. But, um, but as far as I'm concerned, there is a disturbing racist undertone to all that. And um, um, which was for a long time. I mean, one of the things that I write about in tour is that. Um, for a very, I have Dutch friends, yeah. and for a very long time they kept asking me, why is, is the German team so, you know, so white, yes. so not multicultural, yeah. you know, in pretty much in contrast to the Dutch team, and uh, they even took a sense of pride, you know, in the fact that they are all these black players yes. and the German team looked like, oh, uh, I don't know, like it was the 50s or something. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, with our history, uh, we didn't have, well, we didn't have the colonies, mm. you know, we didn't have the migration. Mm. And after two wars, it took a lot of time until people felt that, hey, we should move to Germany, it's a cool mm. place to live. So, so it, t it took us a long time, uh, well, longer than other countries. But gradually, I mean, uh, I always say that um, um, I coached youth teams in the, in the late 90s. And uh, when I did that, it was clear that it was only a matter of time mm. until this would be reflected. Because I coached, I don't know, kid, kids with Ghanese parents or mm. Albanian parents or whatever. And uh, so, and this finally, I think, yeah, at around the turn of the century, the German national team became a lot more multicultural uh, to, to reflect what the society is like now in a, you know, in a modern country. Um, 
But we never really had a discussion about that. I mean, we shouldn't have a discussion. You know, you, well, there's still people who tell me that, that Ozil, you know, is one of those Turkish players. And I always say, well, he's not Turkish, you know, he's German. He's yeah. from Gelsenkirchen. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people still feel like that. Anyway, but we didn't have that discussion as a society, maybe because we as Germans felt we couldn't or shouldn't have mm. that. Other countries had that, you know. I mean, there was this, this debate in, in Switzerland. Yeah. You know about all the, they had a lot of players from the under seventeen uh, side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we, we never had that. It was never. It was like a subject you wouldn't touch. You wouldn't never mention. You know, mm. uh, and and this this other thing just proved that it was still you know it's still under the under the surface mm. that there are just well we do have um, we do have a minority of, of, of racist fans who feel that I don't know a German team should be I don't know whatever. I don't know what even the name, what the, what the term they, is. What they considered. Yeah, yeah. German. I don't even yeah. what, know what it is in, you know, in, in, in the 21st century. No, no, uh, no but it's true, isn't it? Yeah, but so uh, that, was, that was another aspect that uh, <clears throat> played into this whole thing, which is why Ursula has become almost persona non grata now. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's sad. Um, well, you've been super generous with your time, and I know I'm keeping you from uh, dessert or coffee or similar. Um, so, just one final question: Tell us about the next book. Um, you're from England, right? You've got I am. Um, you've got a great literature. You've got a great football literature. What I always liked about England was that um, there would be one English writer. Uh, who would write a book about a, a great person, a great fantastic player, mm. no matter where he's from or who he is. I mean, you've got book, books about Pushkas or whatever, right, or Cruyff. Mm. Um, and it occurred to my agent that there's no proper biography of Franz Beckenbauer, you know, one of the greatest players ever. And, um, and a complex character as well. <laughs> yeah, and a very complex story. Well, we, we, when we were in the football museum yesterday, they were having the discussion exactly. about that. They have this, um, for people who haven't been there, they have this uh, big number five, which is about, I, I guess, about two and a half, three metres tall. And it's got inside it all items of Beckenbauer history, like shirts and awards and all that sort of stuff there's an, there's an ARD sports personality of the year in there somewhere isn't there all that sort of stuff and yet he's going through some things at the moment yeah he's going to be well he's um, you know the, the 2006 World Cup is vastly important you know mm. for, uh, in, in all kinds of ways for, 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 for this country in terms of the game's self image yeah not to be in the game's self image and also the country's self image mm. um because for us as Germans, it's felt that until that point, a lot of people still had reservations about Germany, right. you know. Uh, and then they came and, and found the country to be different from what they thought it would be. Mm. And um, I mean, that was the gist of a lot of post-World Cup coverage. That, yes, we went out in the semis, but it was not really about football. It was about, you know, showing people that this is now a modern open country and it's it's not what you think it is <clears throat> so and now it turns out that um maybe you know we we, we bribed our way into the, getting this world 
we, we wouldn't be the first or the last. No, no, but that's no, exactly. Not the point. So that's a big discussion in Germany now, a big debate, and then the court case is coming up. So, uh, so Beckenbauer's reputation is tarnished at the moment. So you can so write that you can write the first seventeen chapters, but not the eighteenth. No, so that's what they were talking about in the museum. You know, yes. that's what they said. Why? Um, so they wanted, but they were anyway. Um, but the interesting thing about Beckenbauer is, and that's that sort of was part of my expose, as this would be a third life, because in his first life he was he was the greatest player. Uh, we had uh, maybe the greatest player we'll ever have uh, but people didn't really like him uh, he was a Bayern Munich player he was he was a bit well he was a bit arrogant um, uh, I'm not going to tell you the book you know <laughs> you still have to buy it <laughs> uh, he so he left Germany in 1977 um, not least due to tax problems, you know, having problems with the tax authorities and yeah. went to America. And when he left, he was, he was really, um, a lot of people would say, he's a great player, but I just don't like him, you know. Uh, he's, not, he's not Fritz Walter, yeah. you know. Uh, then he sort of reinvented himself in America. Mm. And he came back and then he became national manager and so mm. on. And... Uh, then he became the guy who not only won the World Cup as a player and as a manager, but also won the World Cup as a uh, yeah by by getting us the World Cup as a because that was you know yeah. that was the public perception that um, and and th there is some truth to this I think that he was he was constantly touring the globe you know promoting the German bid. So at that point he was suddenly a totally different Beckenbauer you know after all those achievements yeah. it was people really loved him you know. Uh, not, not just for his achievements, but also the kind of person he had become, his irreverent jokes and his self-deprecating humor and, mm. and all this. So that was his second life, and now, sadly, he's probably going to have a third life, you know, where people at the German f Football Museum are seriously discussing, you know, taking down those things, yeah. which is... It's really sad. It's sad and it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. those things are there for his achievements as a player, mm. you know. Um, but yeah, it's an end, a fascinating life, fascinating person. And, um, so yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I can't wait for the book. No, thank you. This was a Stakhanov production.